Wounds are infectious Like a dog scratched ear But pleasure is high Welcome to the Box Tunnel Survivors Group, a place for those affected by the issues raised in the TV show, Being Human. You want a podcast and series 2, episode 7 of Being Human? I'll show you a podcast in Series 2, Episode 7 of Being Human. This is it. Before we get on to Damage and my chat with Hannah, I will just run through a few of the episodes we've got coming out in close proximity. A Being Human location tour guide of Bristol a couple of days ago. That is in your feed now. And between this episode and next full moon, for a book club, I will be going through The Road, Chases and Bad blood which are the books that were released to coincide with series two and it's worth checking out online if you haven't got them to try and find them because there are some available in some places going really cheap so if you want to heads up and try and get them online before the podcast episode it's worth a go and then of course next full moon we will be discussing the series two finale all god's children it's time to crack on then with Damage, Series 2, Episode 7, written by Toby Whithouse, of course, and directed by Charles Martin. No new characters come into play here. Uh, All the bedrocks of Series 2 are playing their part. It first aired on the 21st of February 2010, and it marks the last time we ever see the Pink House in the show. Here's my chat with Hannah. Returning to the podcast, I think it might be for the fourth time. Yep, the fourth time. It's our goth expert, but you, you're you recently back from Eurovision, not, not about a week or so ago. And I just wondered, as a goth, did you fit in to Eurovision or were you kicked out and banished from Liverpool? Oh, no, I fit in perfectly. I mean, there was a lot of bright colours there, which scared me a little bit. Um, But I do have a love of glitter. And so I was wearing my sequiny goth outfit. So actually, it was absolutely fine. Um, And yeah, I managed to sneak my way in. Through the colours, you (laughs) just fitted the way through. Yeah. Yeah, so you went to Liverpool, but you didn't go to the night that was aired on tv you've got to explain this to me like someone who doesn't understand eurovision because i am someone who doesn't understand eurovision you went to what's it called the grand jury so the it night was before? yeah so it was the jury show of the grand final so that's basically um it plays through exactly like um the live the proper grand finale but um it's just for the jury basically so it's what the jury votes on um so it was pretty much just like seeing the real thing. It was fantastic. And do they tell you the results of the jury votes on the night or do they just hold that back until the final night? They, yeah, they hold it back. So we were none the wiser. They do a fake voting. Um, and during the fake voting, the UK actually won, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was quite a different, you know, um, result to the actual results. But you know, had to make the most of it. So 
in theme with Eurovision, I asked you, well, I asked you a couple of questions. You opted for the art to answer this one. And what three Eurovision songs or artists would work well on being human? So when you asked me this, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be really hard. Actually, I was and going... also, this probably will be really niche because everything you say, I'll be like, never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping one of them you might have heard of. Um, at least I'm hoping that some of the um, listeners will. I actually found quite a few, but I chose three. So the first one is Like an Animal by P- Picked Jacks, um, who were from this year. They didn't qualify for the grand finale, unfortunately. They represented okay. San Marino. Um, but it's very much that sort of um, indie rock, late noughties, early tens music that Being Human used quite a lot. And also the um, live show, the, the singer actually gives me quite vampire energy he has a little bit of a mitchell look to him did you make eye contact with him on the stage and go yes i understand did you have a connection i i didn't i didn't actually see him this Ah. was he was in the um one of the semi-finals um so unfortunately i did not get the honor there and also the title like an animal i thought okay Mm. that's a bit of you know that little funny pun work that being human often does um, so that was my first choice. Then the second one is Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, the UK, um, being human, it has um, those quirky songs, occasionally a good old montage. Um, yeah. And so I thought that one could fit in for a particular scene. Is, it, to... <laughs> is anyone going to whip Annie's skirt off? <laughs> Maybe, maybe this is an un- a deleted scene, and I'm just ju- boxes. I'm just imagining them all, the trio of them dancing in seventies jumpers, and Making then doing your mind that. Up. Yeah, and they're doing that moment, whipping it off. Now I need to see this. Make this, make this a thing. <laughs> and then my third one was from I think it was last year. Um, it was by Maro, who represented Portugal, and it was Saturday, Saturday, which is uh, one of a gen- more gentle pop rock, and it's for those gentler moments, sort of in the background, sort of like the bat flashes type of okay. feeling. So I tried to go for three different tones, which Eurovision does quite well, and so does Being Human. So there you go. Maybe I will drop a link to the songs in the uh, show notes, so then we can get an understanding of it yeah you can judge me and see whether i actually have a good understanding <laughs> of being human the the other option i went for that i offered you was if the annie mitchell and george were to perform a song on eurovision individually what would it be now i i thought about this once i asked you this and i went with for george i i honestly don't know who does the song i probably should have looked into this but everyone knows the song. Do you know the song? What does the fox say? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. that is bringing back but memories. Wow. <laughs> what they could, what he could do is, what does the wolf say? And what does okay, the wolf say? Yeah. It, it would, it would kind of growl. Yeah. Ooh. And be, and behind oh. him, <laughs> oh, and behind him, some people could be dancing in wolf costumes. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. You see, you've thought about the whole set of the whole performance of it. That's what we need. <laughs> yes. Uh, the next one, Mitchell could perform. It's this. I'm going obscure now. This is my indie rock credentials coming out. Uh, it's 
a song called Vampire in the Sun by Nine Black Elps. And it's kind of like a stodgy, stompy rocker. That's kind of cool. But you can imagine, I, well, I can imagine it. When every, every time I hear it, I can imagine Mitchell standing outside the house and just whipping off his shades. <laughs> it's that kind of, got that kind of energy to it. I always think of Mitchell in that one. And obviously because of being human and he is literally a vampire that can tolerate the sun. It always makes me think of that. Uh, the last one is actually a band I'm going to see next week. And they don't, I hope they don't play it because I want the riffs, not this kind of stuff. But it's very theatrical and I can imagine it working in a European setting. It's of the latest Muse album called Ghosts, How Can I Move On? And that could be a nanny song yes. because of because of a almost permanent situation of not being able to move on. Oh, 100%. I think, yeah, I can imagine that working really well for Eurovision. So, yeah, I approve. But you've got to remember, instead of Matt Bellamy singing, it's going to be Lenora Critchlow. <laughs> I don't know, could they, could they perhaps... Oh, I suppose they're doing it individually. I was thinking maybe mm. like a duet type thing. Or they could just do it as a trio and just perform as Bucks Fizz. There we go. There we go, with the whole whipping off the skirts thing as well. I think George would wear the skirt. Um... <laughs> Well, yes, he has worn women's clothes in the show, so yeah, I suppose, yeah. It's it's post transformation. Yes. He's, he's he's got twigs in his hair yes. and uh, all over his face. Yeah. Okay, right, we've got it sorted now. It does make me want to watch um, write a fanfic just based about that. Being human Eurovision. There we go. Watch the space. All right, so we will crack on with Being Human series two, episode seven, called Damage. Now. This is a big old episode in terms of the history of being human. How long is it since you last saw it and did it live up to your memory? Um, Let's see, it's been about... I watched it last, I think, during the first lockdown. So however many, that's, what, three years now? And I mean, it's just every time I watch it, I just more and more aware of how important i mean arguably this is the most important episode of the entire yeah. series because it's it's, yeah. it's pretty much where everything especially when mitchell's narrative is concerned it's been where um his whole narrative has been leading up and then this episode then has the basically forms in series three and then has ongoing consequences in series four as well um so it's really I've been I'm so excited to do that episode on damage because it is such such a key episode in the history and law of being human. Yeah, and it's also the start of the process of the move away from Bristol as well. Yes, it's the last the last time we see the pink house, mm. which was it's that's watching it this time it was the first time that I've actually realized that while watching it and it adds a little bit of a little bit of sadness <laughs> i miss that pink house <laughs> all right so we'll, we'll start with uh the cold open and ivan is back from the undead dead well kind of because it's a flashback and it's to the wail of an air raid siren he lights a cigarette in the dark and offers a lighter to daisy who is sat opposite does she have a name he asks Pearl is response, and presumably the pearl that she tried to kill with a massive pair of scissors in series one. <laughs> this is her. <laughs> um, yeah, so Ivan is sporting an unwise tash, especially given the time, 1941. 
And Daisy confesses to feeling imposter syndrome to be a mother. And Ivan asks, what's the worst thing about that, thinking that? The guilt or the lack of it? And the bombs get louder and Daisy asks if we're going to win the war. My people have never been interested in politics, Ivan declares mysteriously with a knowing smile. You see, I look at the cogs, not the machine. They're easier to predict. Like you, Daisy, what will happen to you? You'll meet someone. He'll be a fraction of what you hope for and you'll make do and mend. And that'll be the first of your dreams to miscarry. You'll become small and provincial like everyone around you, wearing your prejudices like medals. That beautiful mouth will become mean and thin and tight, a life that means nothing, enriches nothing, and when it's all over, not even Pearl will raise a glass. <laughs> I, I love Ivan's speech here, and it's the first time I've actually properly paid attention to it. It's. I feel like it's a really underrated um, section of dialogue, this scene. Hmm. Um, he says a bit later on, which really stuck with me, which is... Um, every human life is just another story by the same author yeah which i just that's such a wonderful phrase and it's also nice to get because of the ivan had a bit of a quiet episode in the episode that he died last time around it's also nice to firstly see him meeting daisy and secondly that he gets another little bit of a monologue out there before we don't see him again yeah, because I think, as you mentioned last episode, we don't actually see a lot of Ivan and Daisy together. No. Um, it's mostly either I, Ivan and Mitchell or Daisy and George or Daisy and Mitchell. And so it's really nice to see them together. And I wish I just wish that we had more of that. Yeah, and as chat-up lines go, it's a pretty shit one, but I think there's more to it in the sense that he's using the kind of same manipulation that Herrick uses, isn't it? He's like belittling, but also at some stages working the confidence up when he needs it because he says things like, you have ambition, you're trapped in a world of dwarfs and you can see it for that. It's not your baby that's in the wrong place. And he says, come with me. And she says, it's dangerous. I don't know what's out there. Let's yeah. go, let's go. Yeah, he says, always. And he offers his hand and says, I'll make you indestructible. Um, he stops short of saying, come see the world and fuck. <laughs> <laughs> he should do, though. Come on. But what's interesting, I suppose, is this is a side to Daisy we've not seen before. She's very timid. It, she's very human. She's very anxious. Obviously, I mean, you would be. You're in an air raid shelter with bombs going off around you. But that's, I guess we can see the side that Ivan brings out of her. Yes, definitely. I would be re I'm I want to know where it went from there as in did he kill her and well turn her into a vampire like immediately after that scene or did it take a few like and then how quickly did she turn evil immediately was there any mm. sort of reluctance I presume not because she's Daisy but it is interesting seeing a different side of her the pre-vampire mm. Daisy and it's great like I say for Ivan to have a really strong last scene but actually I think this scene is much more about Daisy because obviously she's more in this episode and it sets out the hurt she feels at his death and the fallout of that that along with what Mitchell's experience the betrayal that Mitchell's experiences is is what triggers everything that goes on and I love the fact that he says the words you'll make do and mend which in itself in a way would make a good episode title but it's it's even better because he's he's saying make do and mend that it's caused damage because everything about this episode is about damage. Oh it's about goodness. the yes. it's, it's about the fallout. It's about everything falling apart. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't that hadn't sort of twigged to me. I think during that scene, I was also mostly just paying, like, just distracted by his mustache. And <laughs> well, th- this is the thing, right? I'm trying to work out what is the deal with vampires and hair. This is one of the notes I made. Is that mm. vampires always they can have different hairs, but like they stay the same. Yeah. I don't, I don't get it. Like, is it just the hair that grows? Or well, I'm sure. Does, does Ivan Mi- just shave in the in the present day? Is Ivan just shaving every like constantly? Yeah, in the midst of war. <laughs> okay, so after the cold open, we are back in suburban hell, and George is woken up by Molly looking over him. Yes, he does snore, but that's the least of his problems. And we see the clock, and it says eight o eight a.m. And this is important throughout the episode and then we see nina who we haven't seen for quite a while walking down winter terrace and she knocks on the door and annie greets her and with hindsight i assume that nina has contacted annie because annie never usually opens the door because she's a ghost yes (laughs) nina asks how george is and annie cuts uh, cuts to the chase and says he's met someone and he's moved out her face drops as she responds with what she like cut to suburban hell and sam is flapping about in the kitchen she's clearing up asking george to come to the parents evening but he obviously can't because of his tobogganing and narrate sam has no time for it it's like you're still there with mitchell watching the real hustle surrounded by cups of coffee and tea this that's a strange line to me because i think that's thrown in more as a fan Thing because as far as we know Sam's never been there or well that's what I put yeah her surrounded by cups of cold tea that that's not something George would have just mentioned would it mm. so it sounds like she's been no. there but I don't feel like she has no because he wouldn't say oh yeah by the way I live with a ghost who makes lots of cold tea yeah no yeah she's saying I'm asking you to stop giving mixed signals I know things have happened fast between us but you can you set the speed, not me. I'm nerv- I'm nervous now, George. I'm waiting for the other boot to drop. She walks out and the TV is showing footage of the fire at the funeral parlour. Still half asleep and oblivious, George just flicks the TV off. Yeah, I'm surprised that didn't twig anything in George, like, whatsoever, because he knows the funeral parlour. Mm. Um, you know, he went there several times in series one he knows that mitchell is back involved with them like i know he's asleep and it's been a bit of a stressful but like there's no sign of like oh yeah funeral parlor Uh oh it's completely he completely misses it which (laughs) i mean for the for the viewer that maybe doesn't matter but it makes me think it does i presume mitchell hasn't told george or annie about it Nah, Mitchell, you know, he doesn't tell anyone about anything. No. <laughs> Who knows what goes on with Mitchell? <laughs> Back at the pink house, a visibly shaken Nina is taking in the news. I told him to move on with his life. She then asks how Annie is. I'm just tired. Um, and that that is a very important line in terms of, firstly, the way the last episode ended. Um, and also the in the terms of what Sykes has told her in the in the past, in terms of re, re, reality, is that Annie should not feel tired. It, it's a it's a danger sign. It sign, isn't it? It's almost a sign that she's giving up the ghosts. Although that that's a good being human episode title. There you go. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Right. For the the next series of being human that's someday created, we'll remember that. <laughs> she says, "Please tell me you're back to tranquilize George." And she says, "It's complicated." But she states she wants to see him tonight before the full moon. 
And she asks, how's Mitchell, by the way? And Annie sighs. <sighs> and then Mitchell... Obviously, the last episode, they in the next time, they didn't show Mitchell in the next time credits. But there's nothing, even the first time I watched this, there's nothing to indicate, oh yeah, Mitchell's died. There's, because obviously we saw the body of Ivan. There's no, there's no way Mitchell would have died. But I think they were trying to build up that suspense. Yeah, but we know, we know better. But uh, yes, he strides totally unconspicuously towards the parlour, hat and shades on, and goes inside to find a grieving Daisy inside. Ivan saved me, he tells her. They're saying it's one of the incinerators just shorted and caused a fire. We find out that 30 vampires died in the blast. Daisy's angry about it, of course, because she's lost Ivan, and he says, Did you ever hear the phrase, history is written by the victors? The same goes for crime reports and death certificates. I do, I do. I think I've mentioned this in a previous... Um episode um but i do like how being human always is like yeah no don't trust the police the police are not to be trusted <laughs> mitchell doesn't trust the police and he worked with them yes because <laughs> <laughs> he is yeah i think he's got good reason yeah he's convinced the police are responsible that it's a revenge attack for killing the chief, uh, chief constable at the house there's a beautiful shot of nina entering george's room i love this moment it just looks so good the way she approaches it sees the cage and just clings to the bars. A really beautiful moment that I feel like could have so easily been um, cut, but I'm glad that they kept it in because it just shows that little extra of how much she still cares for George. Uh, as she clings to the bars, she hears the front door downstairs and gulps with nerves. George, still under the illusion that he's still living in the house, has given the kitchen a quick <laughs> spruce over, which is a good bit of symmetry because he was not helping Sam at all this morning. George doesn't even need to look around. He just senses the present and presence, and he he immediately knows it's Nina, doesn't he? Yep. And yeah, she could immediately tell it was George when she was upstairs. Yeah. Like they know each other's sense. Like yay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she says really casually, "Hi, you look well," and his face goes from shock as Nina tries to make nervous small talk to annoyance and anger. Uh, and he goes, you, coldly, you told me to move on. It immediately unravels and George harbours his hurt at her leaving and she snaps back. She goes, I've met some people. They might have a cure. For what? <laughs> Cystitis comes a response. They know about us, about werewolves. They have done for a long time. And as soon as Nina mentions that one of them is a priest and one of them is a scientist, she is on the back foot. So we have a defrock priest and a mad scientist. Nope, no alarm bells <laughs> ringing so far. And he catches himself here. He says, God, this is our first conversation. You disappear for weeks and weeks and we're talking about this. Nina goes on to explain the facility, but he interrupts. He says, I'm not going to meet them because it's insane. Three years ago, if someone had told you about werewolves and vampires and ghosts, what would you have said? And he just insists there isn't a cure. And then she goes, then we walk away. Yeah, I quite, I like this um, discussion between them because even though it's not, it's not a very positive discussion. And um, they both, neither of them is sort of viewed as the, like the one in the wrong. I think both of them make very valid points, hmm. um, which is quite nice to see in a TV drama that you're not made to be against one or the other like Nina has a good points like with the whole who says what's impossible and what's not and 
obviously George did completely change her life. She did deserve some time just to be by herself and work out what's going on. But also George has points that, yeah, maybe talking to a, a scientist and a, a mad scientist and defrocked um, priest isn't potentially the safest of ideas. Um, and Nina did leave him in a rather unsympathetic way. I think George knows he's being a dick. He reluctantly backs down, says, yes, okay, this priest, I'll meet him. But what he's doing, the hope he's giving you is cruel. And Nina, in the typical Nina way, just cuts him off. Yeah, okay, I get it. So later today, two o'clock. And as George walks out the kitchen, Nina says, it's good to see you. It stops him, but he walks out anyway. And she lets out this, her body loosens with, as the tension eases out of her body because it's finally, the confrontation has happened. But honestly, how fucking good are these two? I just watched this scene and think the chemistry between the, the two of them is amazing, Russell and Sinead anyway. But the fact, like that argument scene in the first episode of series two, that there's such palpable tension between them. And they're not overacting. They are literally just working the the words and working with each other. And it just pings off the screen. And there's no music there to influence our mood or no. or tell us what to think. They are all doing that themselves. Exactly. They are... I mean, all the Casper in this scene is like George and Nina. I mean, Russell and Sinead. They're both just incredible. And to go through... You know, they do all the different... Uh, all throughout the series, you see all the different parts of a relationship. Mm. And even though, yeah, there's tension, there is a chemistry between them and they play it so well and I love them. <laughs> Heart emoji. Heart emoji. <laughs> yeah, yeah just... watching rewatching it now, the, the older I get and the more I rewatch it, the more I can empathise um, with Nina, the more I like her as a character, mm. which is nice. These scenes that George and Nina have like this together, I've seen them so many times, and yet I feel like I'm on the edge of the seat watching them because they just translate that tension and worry and anxiety just right off the screen. Yeah. You know what's going to happen, but at the same time, I'm like, ooh, what, what's going to happen now? What's he going to respond with? Ooh. Even though, yeah, I, I could recite it. <laughs> yeah, their body language is so important. Like all their facial expressions, all the the tension in their bodies. I don't know. It's just yeah, it's, it's very subtle. Yeah, that's just, it. And I, they're not yelling at each other. They're just, but it's just so well acted because it is just all in the, the subtleties, the voice, the body language, the miniature... Um, expressions and reactions and what I don't understand as I was thinking watching this one is I don't think Russell and Sinead uh, correct me if I'm wrong have appeared in anything else together since and that's madness to me have they been in another show together because I can't believe they haven't I don't not not together they've been in the same yeah. shows but not together yeah it's crazy Meanwhile, Mitchell and Daisy have found a cafe to ponder over the vampire massacre. And I find funny this scene. There's literally someone about three yards behind Daisy. And it's a packed cafe and they're just talking out loud. They, couldn't, they could not have gone to a quieter cafe, a less public place. Like they thought, oh, yes, let's discuss like vampires and a massacre in like a a cafe that you'd get down the street. It's, you know, it's perfectly being human. 
but my goodness, they did not think this through. Daisy says, you see the news much or the world? There's pockets of vampires, some in hiding, some with arrangements like you had here. But things have started to shift. They're fighting back, she continues. They, inquires Mitchell, humans. And Mitchell is dismissive of this. That's what Herrick was always banging on about, survival of the fittest. Look, it comes to this. There'll always be someone with a bigger stick. He suggests they wait, but this triggers her. She bangs on the table. I'm not going to fucking wait. My husband died in there. Don't you get it? We're being hunted. We have to retaliate. I'm going How are you going to do that? Yeah, I'm going to track down everyone who knew. I'm going to torture them. And when I find out who did this, I'm going to kill them. Uh, she's gone off the rails and... Oh, that's a good... That, I'm sorry, that bit with Dave, I mean, this whole, as you might have seen on the twi- Twitter as I, after watching this, I very much find this episode very attractive for many reasons, but that scene with Daisy, my goodness. Woo! <laughs> she can punch my table anytime. Exactly. She can threaten to kill me any day of the week. <laughs> Mitchell is insistent it's the police. I want to hear it from them, Daisy insists. Okay, I know who we talked to and they scarper. I hope they paid their bill. Probably didn't. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Uh, Mitchell returns to the house. He's getting chased in a very agitated fashion. And George approaches to say Nina's back. Get out of here! <laughs> what What was that accent? Guess what he says. He says, get out of here! You've got sort of su- like <laughs> southern US nah, nah, nah. <laughs> How is she? And George speaks of the f- facility. Annie appears holding the tea. She kept that quiet and made a toast and everything. Mitchell douses himself with fragrance from a magazine advert. <sighs> because he's too tight to buy his own aftershave, I assume. The lack of... Honestly, I don't know. I I mean, I understand why people find him attractive, but how do you watch that and still be like, oh yeah, this is what a attractive fella... Because it's my... Men! <laughs> Men! <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's still a thing in magazines anymore. I, when I was younger, I... Oh God, I must have been about 14 or 15. I had a, a magazine put behind... But for me, you know, when you used to pick them up, like, I don't know, that still happens. They just put a magazine, put your name on it. Don't judge me. It was like nearly 30 years ago. It was Loaded magazine. Loaded's got a reputation of being a bit laddie and blah, blah, blah. Okay. No and wonder I had, don't know it then. <laughs> that, that was, that was it. one of those magazines that had all those adverts with rub-on perfumes and aftershaves and things. But once my mum collected it for me when I was at school, and she took it home. There's a picture of a half-naked lady on the front. And then she was like, what is this? I, Michael's reading. And then she flicked through it. And I got home to a, a bit of a bollocking. Ooh. <laughs> There's topless women in here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lovely, a lovely chat, I'm sure that was. <laughs> uh, I've had worse, honestly. God, the, the birds and the bees chat. That was fucking terrible. I do love I, I do love this little scene of them together. Again, it's sort of like going back to the first series of just having them having a little bit of banter together, just the three of them. Um, but it did make me a bit sad because I realised that this is the last they see of Mitchell before like he fucks up it, big time. And it's like, it oh, is. if only you knew what was coming. Especially when he says... Like, what does he say? Like, oh, um, they sound pretty harmless, don't they? Scientists. Yeah, that's it. And it's like, yeah. oh. 
Yeah, and he says, just because someone knows what you are doesn't mean they're a threat. <laughs> threat. <laughs> <laughs> this is so, so perfect. Please give uh, me lessons on how to do the Irish accent. <laughs> it's a bit of o- ominous foreboding. Like you say, as he's leaving, George says, if he's asked if he's heard from Lucy, and he says, no, her flat's all locked up. Remember when you said I'd be an idiot if I told her what I was? And, yeah, they kind of nod at each other and off he goes. Awkward. I think this shows two different sides to George and Mitchell that we know anyway, but George hasn't seen Mitchell for a while. He lays it on the line. He says what's going on with Nina. He talks about the facility. Mitchell is keeping everything secret. The bombing, Ivan's death, and he's only really half listening to George. I have to say, like, Mitchell is often not the best actor ever, but he plays it remarkably cool cool in this scene, like, considering he's, you know, just lost close friends, someone's out to get him, all of that. Like, he's pretty just like, yeah, okay, cool, yeah, not talking to Lucy anymore. Oh, well, yeah, just out on my jollies. And bear in mind, both of these guys are oblivious to Annie, who is feeling tired and stressed. Yeah. And they do not care about her. She's in her mind. She wants she's almost at the stage where she wants to pass over. She doesn't want to fight for for it anymore. Oh, I want to give her a hug. At the facility, Lucy is looking at a goldfish. And sadly, it's not Trevor. Rest in peace, Trevor. Kemp appears. I'm going to see George Sands and Lucy offers to come. She's seen him around the hospital. It might be better if he sees a familiar face. And Kemp does a joke. Are you ready if you want? Better? I shall be nothing short of bubbly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Kemp. (laughs) Kemp. This is classic. Oh, classic Kemp. In this scene, I couldn't work out what the clock said. Did you clock the clock? I did not clock the clock. See, I couldn't work out. I obviously had the wrong glasses on. If it said five to one or five to two, it probably said five to one because he's meeting him, George, at two. But obviously there's a whole confusion about the clocks with George. But George knows the time at two o'clock. Yes. Oh, gosh. Honestly, the time, the whole time thing in this episode, I just... (laughs) (laughs) Don't get me started. His watch is... Sam put it back? Yeah, Sam had already sort of fixed it, updated it. In his mind, yeah, that might make sense. In his mind, it's two o'clock, and obviously in Kemp's world, it's two o'clock as well. Yes. So we'll we'll go along with that for now, but there is a flaw later. Just a little bit. At the house, there's a knock on the door, and George and Annie are in fits of giggles ahead of the big meeting. Annie goes to answer it, but he stops her. Father Ted won't even be able to see me, she exclaims. I think, I think Kemp is more akin to Father Jack, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> George composes himself and in walks Nina with Kemp. It's an honour to meet you, Mr. Kemp, says, extending his hand of friendship. Bubbly indeed. Yep. And here begins the most awkward conversation ever. They gather in the living room to an awkward silence. I love Nina's little look to Annie as well, like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just giggling there in the in the kitchen. And George starts things off and Kemp, you know, (laughs) jolly, replies, you're possessed by Satan. And that's enough for George. He says, "Okay, so thanks you so much for coming. I knew this was a waste of time. 
Uh, when Kemp asks how he would explain it, George backs down a little and asks, This cure, is it like an exorcism? Not quite, though. I have performed exorcisms in the past. No, our cure it stems from the application of faith to science. And this is a funny line to me, the whole exorcism thing, and he clocks that. But application of faith to science. Faith and science aren't a good match. They don't get on with each other. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think they they can. No, I think I think they can. And um, I think that I guess he's saying how like the curse of the possession can be explained by faith, but it can it's sort of affected by science. And okay. so working when science is the thing that's more um, observable, more changeable, you can't necessarily, you know, um, talk to the big guy upstairs and be like, look, change this, please. And guarantee a difference was with science perhaps it's more you can test it more you can try you can change things more um and mm. sort of believe that there might be a difference um okay. with and you know god provided science <laughs> try i'm like mm, what what has church taught me all these years that's it. I'm sold. You sold. You there sold. There we go. I'm I have no, I, no idea what I've just said. I'll listen back <laughs> to this and be like, "Oh gosh, I think I've been incredibly heretical." <laughs> uh, Kemp goes on to explain the decompression chamber. The wolf is not allowed to manifest. It becomes weaker. It dies. And a little sarcastic. Does it work, from George? You would be the first, says Kemp. Now this is withholding very key information. He's implying that this is the first time they're going to test it when he's actually killed a few people before doing it. Yeah, I'm surprised that um, Nina hasn't mentioned that she's already gone through, like, a test oh, yeah. of it. Yeah, that's true. Which didn't end very well. I suppose they did pull out of that experiment. They did yes. stop it. So in, in Nina's Just mind, in it probably... Yes, they could still class it as the first. George is very accurate, he says. So it's less of an exorcism. It's more like vivisection. <laughs> and Bubbly Kemp lets out a little snigger. <gasps> he has a sense of humour. He says it's not without its dangers. And he leans forward. But we believe with every transformation, the wolf gets stronger. Until it is though the creature infects your life between changes. Has that been your experience, George? If you're an exorcist, why not just pray it out of us? And this is what Annie clocks onto. He says, a possession is different from what you might call a haunting. Although I have helped many stranded and lost souls pass on. Annie's ears prick up at that point. Yes, he's, he continues. What you have is demonic spirits. They tend to be more tenacious. George tries to grasp this and he asks, do you really believe what we are can be explained by religion? And Nina chips in because she's been very quiet till now. And she says, you do. You call our condition a curse. Why is a curse easier to believe than a possession? Nina once again spitting facts. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I mean, there's this whole scene is amazing as well. A bit, a bit like the scene in the in the kitchen with Nina and George. And Kemp agrees. He says you can't cherry pick the aspects of faith that appeals to you. If you believe God's miracles, you must believe in Satan. And George wiggles his finger. I don't believe in Satan. And then Kemp leans in again. Then you're an idiot. Evil exists, and so do monsters. No one knows that better than us. And there's a short dramatic pause again, and almost as George looks like he's buying it on his face, and he just goes, nah, still don't buy it. 
Just because something can't be explained doesn't mean it becomes yours. You don't have a cure. There is no cure. And then George walks out. I love this whole scene. Nah. Nah. <laughs> that way he says it as well. It just cracks me up. It's like it's very childish, isn't it? It is like, very childish. And also the confrontation. George walks out and Nina and George have a confrontation on the street. And George is being pretty childish here. Yeah. George has made up his George made up his mind like out that morning when Nina told him about it and it's not been changed. He's made up his mind and he's sticking with that. He's a yeah, stub he, he's a stubborn fool. I mean he, quite clever. He, quite smart yeah, he, though. <laughs> he, he contradicts himself because he's literally just said to Kemp, there is no cure. But in his mind he says, I have my cure. Everything is under control now, thank you. Nina says a cage is damage limitation, the offering back a lies. And then George, he does a weird, sarcastic stroke of his chin. Really? I didn't realise I lacked one. I have a job, friends, a girlfriend who won't leave me. And Nina, <laughs> and Nina snaps, so do it for her. You didn't tell me you had the situation under control. How did that work out for you? Ooh. <laughs> Boom! Spitting the truths! <laughs> Make drop! Oh, yeah, no. Once again, those two. Fantastic. But it's what I've always loved about Nina. She cuts through the bullshit. Yeah, she really does. She just does. slices through it. We love um, Nina. Thank you. In that time, Annie popped a note on the table next to Kemp that said, can you help me? And he said, yes. Nina sulks back to the house and apologises to Kemp for a wasted journey. Not at all, he says through a really creepy smile. <laughs> Sorry, a bubbly smile. <laughs> Yeah, not ominous at all, that. But yeah, it's another brilliant scene. Such naturalistic acting. And then that little nugget that Kemp has quietly discovered that in this house of a, a vampire and a werewolf, there's a ghost in there as well. Yeah, which can only mean great things. At the new build, Sam, who clearly does do marigolds, is once again doing chores in the kitchen. To her surprise, George enters. He's called off to bogging practice because he wants to assure her that... It's He's serious with their relationship and he's babbling spews out in a garbled marriage proposal. Oh, it's so this. I just want to slap George. So <laughs> like this is the mo this is so ridiculous. They've only been together. I don't I've lost track of time, but it can't be more than a couple of months. I'd say two months. Top, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's just ridiculous. He's so stupid. They're both silly. Actually, were you really at Eurovision? Were you going to toboggan practice? Is this just a cover-up? Oh, yes, they would. Um, no, um, it was Eurovision. I'm definitely not a tobogganist. How dare you suggest <laughs> such a thing? You should wear a t-shirt. I'm not a tobogganist. Not a yes, you add that to the Being Human and the Box and All Survivors Group merchandise. <laughs> I am not a tobogganist. Yeah, and weirdly, she excitedly... She, at first, she's a shocked, but she excitedly accepts... And how very being human for a wedding proposal to be done when someone is wearing marigolds. Although she calls them rubber gloves, which we'll overlook. I mean, yeah, it's all the case of George, what the fuck are you doing? At St. Jude's Hospital, the coroner's... Woo, coroner office time! <laughs> the coroner is greeted by a stern Mitchell and Daisy jumps Stephen from behind and puts his knife, a knife to his throat. Now, I'm more than happy to be jumped from behind by Daisy. I completely agree. Even yeah. if she's got a knife, bring it on. Oh, the knife just makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> we'll allow knife play for Daisy. Yeah. I, just, I like, also like the way she says, yes, you're not answering that one. Also, <laughs> she says, 
Hey, Stephen the coroner. <laughs> yes, it's a wonder. That is, it's St- Stephen the coroner. It's um, no, a brilliant, a brilliant title. It sounds like I don't know what he sounds like. He could be a coroner. A coroner, <laughs> <laughs> possibly. Yes, it's the Vi- right. a Viking, isn't it? It's, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mitchell questions him on the funeral parlor fire. Daisy wants closure. I tried to explain to her. I said he's not the guy. Sure he'll have known about it. Come on. Sure he'll have known about it. (laughs) Oh, whoa. Agent Turner? Is that you? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And helped cover it up. You want to focus your energy on whoever organised it. Stephen isn't giving any names to start chuckling. You run, run. (laughs) Okay, it's it's getting better. Yeah, I think that one, that's not a bad attempt, actually. Hey, well, I, I'm caught a Scottish. Maybe there we it's go. just yes, this is coming out. Whether it was us or somebody else, you run, run. <laughs> you could, you could, with your um Mitchell um impersonation, your Stephen impersonation, you could recreate this whole scene. Just I you, thought, just if you I, can do a Daisy Scottish accent as well. Boom. I'm gonna do a one man being human show because yes. recently I I've got a friend who recently watched a one man Buffy the Vampire <gasps> show. Yes, Viva- yes. Yeah, that yes. case time recently, someone saw that. What I can do is I can do <laughs> really bad impressions of the being human cast and put I can put a greasy wig on for Mitchell. Yep. Uh, Don't I wear deodorant a... for like a week beforehand. <laughs> I could put a summery dress on for Daisy. Yeah, remember the knife. Uh, <laughs> and Mitchell pushes him to the wall and he Stephen starts reciting. What do you reckon this is? Is it a nursery rhyme? Or he says, here comes a candle to light yeah. you to bed. Here comes a chopper to chop off your head. Yeah, it's like um, a rhyme thingy. I can't, I, I know it from childhood. Yeah. Yeah. These kind of appear quite a bit in Being Human. There's a couple more examples in the future where like nursery rhymes prop up. Whether it's a Toby thing that he thinks they sound quite sinister, maybe. They do. I mean, that is a pretty sinister rhyme right there. So, like, yeah, they can they can be very... Uh, I think it's a good a good piece of dialogue. Uh, and he continues, I wish to God it had been us. I'd have invited every father. <laughs> no, for us. <laughs> okay, that's gone into Bam. more, like, uh, West Country there. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I live, I can't help. <laughs> Father, mother, oh no, it's gone, it's gone. Oh, it was gone. good while it lasted. That was actually weirdly more Irish than my Irish <laughs> accent. Father, mother and child of your victims and we'd have held hands as we listened to the screams. And Mitchell backs down and he has a bit of fear in his eyes. What do you think makes him back down here? Because he realises that Stephen, the coroner, is essentially correct. Yeah, I think so. Obviously, Mitchell always has struggled with his guilt of killing people, and so when Stephen the coroner does bring that up, it obviously hits him. Yeah, but not like, hard enough. <laughs> I like what he says. Okay, so A, I told you so, and B, you are really rude. And she does this brandishing a knife right to his face. Mitchell goes to walk away. Stephen the coroner goes, "You won't find her," and it stops Mitchell in his tracks. Oh, another train pun there. 
she disappeared. Am I right? She came to my office a few weeks back, said she had this bonkers idea that I was working for vampires. She told me not to worry, said they'd got it planned. There was going to be a fire and Mitchell's intensity notches up a gear with every single word. And he goes, what's the name? Tell me now. Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot more dramatic. Dun, dun, dun. What do you mean? You you don't think that's an accurate portrayal of that scene? Um, There could be work done. So you're saying I need more rehearsals for my one-man show? Just a few more. Just a few. I think it's almost there. And Mitchell coldly takes the knife from Daisy's hands and stabs him right in the chest a few times and has a hissy fit of furniture destruction. So he really does not like Ikea. No, this this must have been so fun to film. I think oh, this yeah. bit, like, I wonder how they prepared um, for this. Like, how Aiden, did he just get really frustrated beforehand? Just let it all go? Um, did he think about my future impressions of him and may- got really angry? Maybe. Maybe because <laughs> at some point in the future, there's going to be a podcast fan, podcaster, who's going to make a really awful impression of me. That's it. He, ch- but, oh. he channeled it. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, oh yeah, he says for years I protected humanity. I wanted to join them, and they do this. You're right, Daisy. We're under attack, and the breathy killer line. You want retaliation? I'll, I'll show, show you, you retaliation. retaliation. Oh. <laughs> a Daisy looks both confused about what's going on and very horny. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Mark me down as scared and horny. <laughs> That's this episode. That is this episode. That is, yeah. Yeah, we. I, I, I did see your tweet last night and I, in my notes I've got confused and horny. So we did match up on that one. I mean, we've all been confused and horny at some stage in our life. Daisy, I think partly it's because Mitchell's being, you know, just killed someone and she's like, yeah, baby. But secondly, she loves being around dead bodies. She does. Yeah, I think also because, you know, she has known Mitchell in the past when he's been Big Bad John. Now he's be he, she meets him again and he's, you know, off the blood, trying to live a normal life. Seeing him now completely lose it, um, kill a guy in cold blood, like, that must be kind of exciting for her to be like, yes, he's back. We're going to have some fun. I might have lost Ivan, but now Mitchell's here. Um, (laughs) Now Mitchell's my daddy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she moves on very quickly, as we find out later. Yeah. So, and thus begins the hottest murder couple. Woot woot. In a complete change of tone, George was, is with Sam at the parents' evening, and George puts on his best posh dad voice with the fellow parents. I always love this line. It's the eternal dilemma go private or spend extra money on tuition. <laughs> I feel like George, before this, he's like done a whole bunch of researching on what topics will be discussed at schools and stuff like that like what's in the news at the moment molly is in the playground and looks up to the moon i don't know whether i mean it was discussed a bit in the last episode whether there's this weird sixth sense going on with molly that wasn't properly explored yeah because she she knows the way she looks up at the moon i think she she has an inkling at least but i don't know 
Is it just because she's a child and so children's imaginations obviously run higher than adults and so she's already thinking, oh my gosh, my mum's boyfriend is secretly a werewolf, you know, that whole Mona the Vampire type thing. Hmm. Yeah, or maybe she's just never seen a full moon before. <laughs> <laughs> that is a big full moon, isn't it? That's it's what huge, yeah. always in TV shows, whenever they or film, whenever they have a full moon, it grows about a hundred times the size. It Must could be, a be super moon. Yeah, super moon. Yeah, there you go. Annie is at home and she is leaving a, an answer phone message on the house's phone, and we hear a bit of it. The prospect of this scream of time ahead of me is terrifying. But there's a ring at the door. Annie lets them Kemp in, and he is with Hennessy, who has previously been in the house. Annie, are you there? And Hennessy points in the direction of where Annie is, and Kemp asks if she should still wants to do this. After some consideration, though, she says yes to the shock of Hennessy. Jesus, she's powerful. And blasphemy in front of Kemp is not going to end well for you. Um, yeah, again, that's another little hint of the power of Annie, isn't it? She just said yes, and he, he was overwhelmed by it. Kemp approaches the empty space before him. You just want to be set free, don't you? And Annie gives a resigned nod. This is the very heart of the arc of her series here, isn't it? The invisibility... Not just of a physical body, but a soul. It's just draining her. Yeah, very. It's yeah. I suppose you know what I was saying earlier that this is a very, this is a, a Mitchell episode in terms of his narration. But it is really for all of them, isn't it? Including mm. Annie. Um, it's a big turning point. It's everything coming to a head, and I think that's why the penultimate episodes amongst the Phantom of being human in the series have always got a reputation because it's like where everything's combining together isn't it yeah at the parents evening george is having awful convulsions as he checks his watch while kemp is carrying out an exorcism in the house uh, the house rattling to the histrionics and then silence and annie is left unimpressed i thought we'd be done by now george should be here so nonchalant and so completely unaffected by kemp's charms yeah <laughs> Again, that could that could be something that adds to the lineage of hints that Annie is powerful because you'd assume that when Kemp's done that before, the ghost is gone, but she's just totally unaffected by it. Yeah, no, she's sticking around. George is sweating and asks the time. Sam tries to comfort him and says, you're just out of sorts, that's all. It's the clocks going back. Realisation hits George and the scene gets really fucking grim. He grabs her arm too tightly his aggression is seeping out and he shouts, answer me. He tries to leave but falls to the floor. He runs away, past school children, convulsing, screaming, shouting and crawling along the corridor. Molly approaches him and that look as George turns to face her and he shouts, run, run. And she does. She does. Yeah, yeah this bit is so... It's hard to watch. It's so tense. Again, yeah. you sort of get distracted in this bit because it's the whole, like, George not knowing that the clocks have gone back. It's all... I remember back in the days of the blog, we had a big discussion on how mm. this whole scene and the whole thing about the t um, clocks going back or forward, it doesn't make sense because the clocks change on a Sunday. Yeah, and... I was going to say the same yeah. thing. They, they changed on a Sunday morning. The parents' evening wouldn't be a Sunday evening. No, no. And just again, like, yeah, George surely would have known. He's so... Obviously, things are going on. Things are happening. But this isn't the first time that the clocks have changed while he's been a werewolf. 
it's such a small thing, but it does take me out of it a little bit. But then we get into yeah. the whole actual transformation, and I'm straight back into it because ah, it's fucking it's, incredible, isn't it? It's so. I mean, it's it's so filmed so well with the whole like such a close shot of his face following him. It's really it feels very simple but it's so effective and it is it's one of the bits i don't like to watch and it's really chaotic even so from chaotic. The, mo- the moment he's walking through the corridor and it's kind of distorted and richard wells's deep strings underpinning it and then when it kicks into the the music as he's as he's, as he's escaping and then going onto the street and literally like his his nails are poking through and his teeth are showing and his face is starting to convulse. It's just like fucking hell. I know. It's you amazing. feel it as a viewer as well. Like when he's yeah, looking yeah. at his fingernails, I like got very squeamish because I could, uh, I would have loved to see the behind the scenes of this one. Yeah. And uh, it goes back to like, it's been said before, but the way Russell does transformations, he puts everything into it. It's iconic. He? And this is a yeah, this is a new twist. He's literally in a school and on the street. This set of scenes coming up now, including this one, every time I watch it, if we overlook, I mean, has there ever been done a, par- a parents' evening done on Sunday night? Potentially, potentially in, in Britain, we we yeah. go with it. It probably has. <laughs> and yes, you could have got sidetracked with the time. There's the argument. The, would the hour make that much difference when it's like seven fifteen? I think they said it was. Yeah. So it was eight fifteen. In his mind, it was eight fifteen. Or what, but any of that, you can know just like the power of these scenes all bulked together because it's the trio going through their own shit, and it's just it's really powerful. Or like it's the nightmares becoming real. It's everything. It's both for George and Mitchell, and to a sort of lesser extent, Annie. It's what they have been fighting against and trying to resist for the entire show so far. Hmm. This is the episode that everything falls apart and they have to experience what they've been dreading the entire time. It's yeah. fantastic. It's, there was damage, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it it's, is. <laughs> it's, and it gets even worse from here because there's not even any time to take that in. Because we immediately cut to passengers on the train and announcement displays there's a signal failure up ahead. Apologies for the inconvenience. But over the tannoy, a few seconds later, the passengers hear screams and a lovely mulching sound. Lights flicker. They're numbing. Then... They're not numbing. <laughs> They're numbing. Not use that term enough, have we? And only for them to be greeted by a fanged up, blood-stained, blood-soaked daisy at one end of the carriage and Mitchell at the other. It's it's such <laughs> it's glorious. A, yeah, it is. It is glorious. And what this is the sort of first time watching it that I became aware of actually how this is as I've said like the most important moment in the show, arguably. But it is such a short amount of time. Mm. Like it's only I don't know how long the sequence is. I didn't time it, but it's a very brief scene really, and you don't see a lot of what happens because they sort of cut um the editing is fantastic um but it's brilliant how it's so effective and it has such an impact but it's only you know it's what less than it feels like less than a minute a minute at most really 
And it all changes. It all changes. Yeah. The whole yeah. show twists on its head. And I th- I made a note that, that this is this episode, it really makes Being Human stand out amongst other um, shows um, because, like, Mitchell... He's the his main character. He's a protagonist, and he's be, like he's a beloved main character as well. Like people love him. Like I saw someone on Tumblr the other day being like, "Oh, I've just started watching Being Human, and oh, I want to be um, Mitchell's wife." Um, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh gosh, knowing because good luck with that." Yeah, <laughs> and here he is now committing a crime that's completely inexcusable. You know, it's not. It's not done for any good reason. This is pure evil, monstrous behavior, and hmm. Mitchell is doing it, and he's enjoying doing it. Like he likes enjoying this scene. Obviously, he regrets it later, but this scene, he he enjoys it. And for them, for the producers, for Toby to think, yes, let's do this. Like that must have taken a lot of nerve because you're taking a character that most viewers would love who originally was really charming and lovely and funny, and then committing a, a, a massacre of 20 innocent people. Yeah. And also, this kind of level of Mitchell we've only heard about. Yes. I mean, yes, he's done the odd killing here and there, and we've seen him racked with guilt for it, or this level has only been in the past. Yeah. This is big bad John, like, yeah. fully. Yeah. And it's... I mean, it's a credit to Aiden's performance and a credit to the writing as a whole that we still like Mitchell after he's torn the throat <laughs> out of 20 people. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, I saw the great post which was had, it was like, oh, they're a mass murderer, but that's okay. And then um, if he's ever mean to like Annie or anyone, I'm like, how dare you? I can forgive a few murders, but how dare you speak to Annie in this way? <laughs> Yeah, let's not go over like problematic crushes. <laughs> uh, Oops. We're happy for Nazi to knife us, so you know. Yeah, yeah. That tells us all. Yeah, that probably tells too much about us. What has this show done to us? <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> if mo- I hope my parents don't listen to this. <laughs> At the house, Kemp is still trying to rid the world of Annie while she just sits there twiddling her hair. She interrupts. There needs to be a door for me to pass over. And Hennessy communicates this to Kemp. We need a door. Did we bring a door? (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, that is quite a vague statement for Manny. (laughs) The piece is ruined by George crashing in through the front door. He clocks Kemp, but Annie pushes him up the stairs and into the cage to complete the transformation just in the nick of time. I mean, just how far gone was he when he was running up that hill? That's not a Kate Bush pun. Uh, <laughs> I'm going long Windsor Terrace. How far gone was he? You'd have thought that maybe someone might have might have called the police by now, but... Back on the bloody Orient Express, a rail worker boards the train. He tries to click on the light box. Has someone been playing silly buggers with this? He walks through the dark carriage, knowing something isn't quite right. He flicks the light on, only to be faced with a mass of contorted dead oh. bodies. Someone's music still playing with his phone shoved in his mouth <laughs> that is a good quality a good quality ipod <laughs> honestly when i spoke to marcus whitney about this scene so much fun to do they contorted the bodies and just did random things with them 
And like you say, even even in this scene, there's not a lot of shots, but literally it's so fucking gruesome. Oh. Like everything is covered in blood. Yeah. This was one of the one of the scenes that made me be like, I want to work in TV or film. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. lovely. And also, yeah. it's funny, like seeing them, that, like that guy with the iPod stuck in his um, mouth. I think there's someone else with like a newspaper, like yeah. stuck down his throat. And all I can think, like, I'm just imagining, obviously, like, it. This was Mitchell and Daisy who did this. <laughs> and, like, who did? Who did what? Who stuck that newspaper down that person's throat? Which one of them? Yeah. Obviously, did oh. not have any of those little deodorant packets packets on it maybe you just rubbed one of those pages yeah. of someone's face up their nose <laughs> take that you bastard i mean just the, the what a collection of scenes every time i watch this it gives me goosebumps no matter how many times i've seen it and it's just three life-changing events all within like what 10 15 minutes like that's the <laughs> incredibly intense yeah uh downstairs annie tells her guests he's locked away now it's safe and Hennessy understandably bites. What the fuck was that? Uh, Kemp leaves his address with Annie. Come and see me. It was a pleasure meeting you. Please give your regards to George when he returns. Uh, the next morning, George wakes up but can't reach the key outside the cage. When freed, he dresses quickly because he needs to get to Sam as he has no idea how it was left with her. He storms out and once again, Annie is alone again, not able to talk to anyone. Yeah, he's just wrapped up in his own shit. Mitchell's wrapped up in his... Mitchell is on a killing spree somewhere. <laughs> They're just oblivious <laughs> to the fact that she's nearly committed ghost suicide. Yeah, I do like that she passes it off as her friends. She had friends round. It's like, does she, does she have does she have ghost friends? I would have loved more. Of, I would have loved to know more about Annie's ghost social life. Uh, I guess that what we see of Annie's ghost friends, they move on quickly, don't yeah. they? Yeah. Uh, Sam is unimpressed, as well you would be. It was awful, George. It was embarrassing. Are you a risk, she asks. And George goes down his standard route of saying it's a condition he has to manage and last night was a blip. So this thing, she contemplates. I meet someone I like and it turns out they're a bit mean or a bit cruel or a bit racist and you are none of these things. Instead, it's this. She wants him to apologise to Molly and she says you better be worth this. And she calls Molly downstairs. Uh, the sight of George obviously results in a trauma response of screaming and George's eyes fill with tears. Knowing his new life is a hoax, knowing that he really isn't worth this. Yeah, that makes that shot of George as the tears well up. What was Russell thinking about? I haven't done an impression of George yet, so he, I probably have actually. So he's probably be thinking about my future impression of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or or worried that he's going to dress up as Bucks Fizz in the Eurovision. Yes, yes. <laughs> Mitchell is still getting his kicks though. After a blood-soaked sex session, he is lying with Daisy, Daisy finger-licking Spiteri. <laughs> he, he wants to find Lucy, and he can get answers from the hospital chaplain. Now, this scene, it's kind of hot and it's kind of not. Firstly, Mitchell's hairy chest is a bit like, oh no. But secondly, it's the squelching noises. <laughs> it's just like, oh, it's like, no. Oh. Well, this, well, Daisy's like sho shoving her finger in her mouth and then putting it down. Yeah. Oh. No. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Just, uh, I'm conflicted. And also just thinking about the cleaning. Because what I realised this time is that I think they're in Mitchell's bedroom. 
It's what it seems to suggest. Do you reckon? Well, okay, so he, when he meets Annie in the sort of one next scenes, like she's like, oh, did you have a friend over? And so that makes me think they were in his room, but I don't know. Um, but regardless, the cleaning up must have been an absolute pain. Um, what, what I what I did know, which I still don't understand, maybe you can you can shed a light on it, is that oh when they're discussing take, like going killing everyone in the world, mm-hmm. um, Daisy's like, oh, just the two of us that could take some time. Then Mitchell says, there's someone else, and. Uh, who is that? What does he mean by that? Who is that? Ooh. Yeah. Oh. There's someone else. Maybe listeners, <laughs> write in if you know who that someone else me- is. Because I, I was trying to think and I could not think of anyone, anyone maybe, else. Maybe that's a line I didn't clock. Maybe I was too distracted by the blood and the finger licking. <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised I wasn't distracted by that. I did rewatch that scene a couple of times. Um, did you in slow motion? <laughs> no comment. So yeah, he says we'll kill F- in his quest for Lucy. He says we'll kill everyone in the world until we find her, and then they have a romantic snog. Their mouths filled with the last gasps of twenty innocent victims. Uh, they might. Again, they must have got. They're, they're in someone's room, whether that's Mitchell's room or a hotel room. And I, they're covered in blood. So I assumed a hotel, yeah. but yes, yeah. <laughs> they got in. They, I mean, they are like unless they took some blood, saved it for their fun times, their play times in the bedroom, and that all of that blood all over them is just from that. Bring, bring your portable bl- bl- sex blood with you. Yeah, ex- yeah, yeah. They filled it up and was like, "This is for later." <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb. I think Daisy's still staying in a travel lodge. Uh, at the new build, George has no words of comfort for Sam. We can't carry on. Who was I trying to kid? What did I think would happen? We were so eager to be normal and needed. We filled in the rest. We pretended. This isn't a life I get now. This is something that happens to other people. He kisses her forehead. You're wonderful. She's wonderful. Now, Sam, to me, Sam obviously doesn't know the context to any of this. Most of these words are really cruel, but what's crueler is the fact that he just walks away. They've literally just changed their lives and moved in together, yeah. and he walks away. And he's he is ultimately doing the right thing. Yeah, but it's still unfathomably cruel, isn't it? It's very just cruel. A... He's literally just proposed to her like yeah. the day before, and then just that. But you know, George hasn't always dealt with these things in the right right way. And that is the last we see of Sam and Molly. Bye. <laughs> that was sincere. Laters. Later. So that's kind of what George did. Laters. At the pink house, Annie approaches a dishevelled and extra greasy Mitchell in the kitchen. It's the ghost, he says in a hushed tone. I kissed you once. Do you remember? And it gets creepy. Oh. I think about your body under the clothes. Oh, he's such a creep. I think about your skin. He goes to kiss her and she retreats. And George charges in, oblivious, and starts packing a bag for the facility. We're monsters, Annie. Immersing ourselves in humanity is deceptive and dangerous. And sooner we're away from people, other people, the better. Annie says she'll come with him. I think that's partly a support and partly because she wants to get away from Mitchell. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, She gestures towards the kitchen. There's someone in there. And she ushers George in to see him. He's welcomed with open arms. Oh, no, not him again. I thought he'd moved... I'm not going to do that. (laughs) 
I thought it moved out. He's always fucking here. <laughs> ER, ER. Sounds like, sound like a fucking wurzel. Uh, George's response is classic because thinking he's drunk. I need to tell you something important. You'll probably want to have a wrestle. I'm going to that place with Nina. And a blood drunk Mitchell just does not give a shit. Piss off because I'm getting really sick of your dog hairs on my clothes. And they lock eyes. George twigs something is really bad. And Mitchell snaps out of it very momentarily and tells him to leave. This scene, another. Oh, this scene. Feed it into my veins. Oh, it's a, And is this our first example of like that good-bad switching in vampires? I guess so. I guess it is more explicit with how because they literally defined it as good good Hal and evil Hal. Yeah. But... He comes to a bit. Mm. But oh my gosh. It's... <sighs> it's... I mean, Aiden's fucking brilliant in the scene. It's just... He's just unhinged and it's it just... It big bulging eyes and just lost. The big black, like his um, like irises, just completely black. It's yeah. wonderful, but he's so dramatic. Yeah, and then he, I love this. This is one of my favourite lines in the whole show. It's all good, Georgie. It's all good. With his and he hat, cussed, yeah. yeah, he cussed his face. Oh, but he's trying to fight it because his eyes are flickering, and he's just trying to like. Because they're friends. He says, George, you're my friend, right? Whatever you are when you leave that place, stay out of the cities. The cities won't be safe for much longer. <laughs> oh, game changing. I, lo- I love it. But also I'm like, Mitchell, what are you planning to do? Stay out of the cities. Like, this is, this is big, you know? Yeah. I mean, I don't think George needs to ask because he knows. Oh, yeah. He, he realises something's really fucked up has happened. And then, again, another goosebump moment for me is when the church music kicks in and they start leaving the house and driving down the road and Mitchell looks out at them from from the window and it's just like, oh, it, it, honestly, feed it into my veins because this is, I don't know another show that does this kind of thing, has done this kind of thing. And that, that was that, really spectacular. It's, it's spectacular, isn't it? it? It is so spectacular. And then they're just... You know, when Annie says, we're not coming back here again, are we? Oh, and they don't. That is the <laughs> last of the pink house. Yeah, it's yeah. that whole, yeah, you mentioned the music. And I, it is one of, I think the music just absolutely makes it. It yeah. would have been impactful anyway. But it is Gregorio Allegri's um, Il Samo Miserere. <laughs> Cannot speak Latin. Medios. Were, were, you doing my, were you doing my Aiden accent there? That was my Latin, my monk. Misery. Um, but yeah. I translate. I looked at the translation of that title, and it's um, "Have mercy on me, O God." Oh wow! Which is. Mm. And also, I think that's very fitting because obviously where they're going, it, yes. it fits as well because obviously they're going to Kemp and Lucy. Yeah, it's just oh. perfect. Whoever decided on that piece of music, thank you. I owe you so much. We all owe you so much. <laughs> we owe you our hearts. Uh, but there's this thing. It's not even fucking done then because then Mitchell has not done freaking people out. He approaches Saki Mark at the church, who's now longer, no longer Saki. And he says, George told me about you. And that Mitchell asks, do you know what I am? And surprisingly here, he says yes. Because I remember the George conversation when Saki Mark asked about what they were. George 
refused to say. He says, I don't want to ruin your faith or I don't want to... He's been doing do... his research. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so do you think Mark actually thinks he's a vampire or knows he's a vampire? I think, yes. I think also, similarly to what Kemp believes, I think he thinks, yeah, this is a, a demon, this is evil. I do think that he knows he's a vampire, but definitely knows that he's not a human. Mitchell is asking after Lucy. George, yeah, so he, he gets on his high horse here. George risked his life to save you. Why? Mitchell is repelled by the religious imagery. Whoever you are, I will tell you nothing. Whoever you are, you stay away from her. Whoever you are, you stay away from Lucy, Lucy Jaggart. <laughs> you got Uh-oh. a bit carried away there. I think he's been practicing since series one. I think <laughs> <laughs> he's living. He's he's in his main character moment. Yeah, yeah, but again, he's. I mean, this is. I think this is the only time he appears in series two, but he's fucking yeah. brilliant. Oh, best supporting character. There we go. Custom uh. <laughs> Oh, Mark, what have you done? But also, how, do, how did Mitchell not know Lucy's last name? Uh, he did. But no, I think that's... are you sure? Because No, I think he did, because that's what... Because when the coroner said Lucy, I think he was a bit like, hmm, I think I know. And that's why he started suspecting her. But I, I think, and I think that's part of the, the killings on the train, because he kind of knew, but this is the confirmation. Ah, you see, because the way I read it ooh. is that, yeah, ooh, is that um, I don't think he twigged that Lucy and Professor Jagger were the same person. No, you're right. Which yeah. is why this yeah, yeah. is, because Jagger is quite an unusual name, isn't it? It's not like Smith or anything. It's like, if you heard, like, George saying, oh, and Professor, this Professor Jagger. I think Mitchell would have been like, oh, you know what? Lucy's called that. Lucy's last name is Jagger. I wonder whether they're related. Um, so that makes me think that he, for some reason, did not know Lucy's last name. Yeah, I think you're right. It's uh, he's When the coroner said Lucy, he's known that Lucy's known about him. Yes. And is betraying him in that way. That's I, I mean, that's what I meant when I was but, uh, but yes, yeah, but yeah. he's he's connecting once he reveals Now he's like, Oh, this name. is the same yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um George's George and Annie are with them. Oh no. Oh shit. Yeah. So Annie and George are in the facility. Lucy approaches George and she says, I know you. She states Welcome to Freedom as the shutter closes down on George, Annie, and Nina and series two. Episode 7 of Being Human. <laughs> That's so good! Uh, even just discussing it, not even watching it, I'm like, oh, I need a moment to process everything. That's the thing, like, doing this podcast, advice to anyone out there, if you're doing a podcast and a TV show that you really fucking love, you really need to love that TV show because it sometimes becomes like work. When you're doing the notes and when you're trying to analyse every aspect of it, it becomes like work. To me, the note-taking, yes, is work. But then when I talk about it, and especially in an episode like this, I'm still excited to talk yeah, about it because exactly. it's just <laughs> fucking hell, it's so good. If this if this was my full-time job, sign me up. I could, I could do this all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Concluding thoughts? Um, I mean, I think I've said really everything that I've 
think about this episode, it is just such, it's an iconic episode, it's the most important, it's so daring, um, it changes everything we know about being human, about these characters, um, it's just wonderfully done, and even though, yes, it's got plot holes, it's got things that make me shake my head, it's overall, like, the good parts of it so outweigh any of the little little niggles that I have about mm. it. It's just, yeah. Yeah, but I think that goes to what I'm saying. I think any TV show, if you're analysing it to this extent, there'll be a moment you go, oh, well, yes. I'm not really sure <laughs> that would be a thing. This or... is for TV in the end. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. not a it's not reality and also if you're in a slightly different world which this is why can't they have parents evenings on sunday nights but yes that's a really good point in this alternate universe where vampires and werewolves and ghosts exist parents evenings are on sunday evenings (laughs) it's the least it's the least of the world's problems isn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) and there it is can you believe it we are nearly at the end of series two just before we go, another little bit of cast watch. Michael Socha is starring in a new BBC Two drama called The Gallows Pole. And he plays the main character called Hartley. And he assembles a gang of weavers and land workers for a criminal enterprise that will capsize the economy and become the biggest fraud in British history. And as far as I know, this is based on a true story in a real life person. And it's great to see Michael in a big role. It's a three-part series. It's directed by Shane Meadows, who Michael has worked with in the past. That will be out on iPlayer as of now. And I'll leave with the admin. If you want to be an honorary old one and come on the podcast and discuss an episode of Being Human, you can contact me at boxtunnelpod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at boxtunnelpod, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, as the Box Tunnel Survivors Group. Become a recruit, like and subscribe on your app of choice. And I'll sign out as I sign in with Dog Scratched Ear by Henry's Funeral Shoe. And remember, it's all good, Georgie. It's all good. was the Box Tunnel Podcast, and thanks!